his purpose and plan for your life. So uh, as we study this, there's a, there's a theological component, and I don't want to get so bogged down in it that you lose the... They, they go hand in hand. I can't separate them. So I'm going to pray that God would give us revelation and knowledge this morning of his word and how it affects us. So Lord, we thank you. As we study your word, we believe there is power in it. We believe that, God, you have a plan for our lives. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that freedom would indeed rule and reign in this place. Lord, we desire to live for your glory. We believe you have a purpose and plan for individuals and for this church. Lord, we acknowledge today that we need even a greater revelation of the freedom the transforming power of the gospel, the grace that is available to us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you. Spirit of God, move among us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Galatians is uh, this incredibly rich theological book, just six chapters long, but it is really in-depth. And I'm trying to cover it in six weeks, which is really impossible. So I hope you're reading through Galatians with me so that we can, um, we can receive what God has for us. Because in chapter 5, when we get there, we're going to see it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Paul is, Paul is pleading with the Galatian believers, a church he established, a church he has really planted to not to not give up their freedom. Now, for us, we don't quite get the whole context of it, but let me just give you the historical kind of idea so that you'll understand, because some of the same things there we're battling with, we battle with today, just in a different context. So Paul comes to this church in Galatia. He establishes the, the, the church. He preaches the gospel of grace. He preaches the good news that Jesus Christ has come. The Gentiles those who are not Jewish, come into faith. Now, Paul, as he's apt to do, he, he established a church, stays with it, appoints some leaders, and then goes out and plants more churches. After he leaves, some people, some Jews from it, Jerusalem come, they follow him in, and they said, hey, Paul's gospel was good, but it, it was incomplete. That if you really want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, if you want to be Christian, then you have to become Jewish, basically, in order to be Christian. You've got to follow the law. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to be... And Paul, he, he gets angry. I, I don't see any other way to read into this other than Paul is irate to say, listen, we looked at this last week. I'm just reviewing. Listen. The gospel that I'm preaching is not my gospel. It is God's gospel. He's the one who gave it to me. He's the one who established it. And really, he goes on to say that any revision of the gospel that I gave you is not a revision at all. It's a reversal of the gospel. It's, it's taking away the good news. The good news is this. Jesus came and gave himself for us. He died for for us so that we might receive life. That anything I do in order to receive this good news isn't good news. 
The gospel is all about the gospel of grace, what God has done for us. So, we're saved by grace, and we have to continually live by grace. That's really the message that Paul is trying to tell him, and anything more is not the gospel. He goes on then from the middle of chapter 1 through the middle of chapter 2 to give autobiographical material, where he's going to talk about things that that have happened as a result of the gospel of grace. And they really illustrate three pits that we can fall into uh, as believers or people who want to follow God if we're not careful. And so his, his first story, he tells us about himself. He says, I was very zealous for the gospel. I, 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 uh, not for the gospel. I was very zealous for God to the point that I put into prison those who are followers of Jesus Christ and persecuted the church. And he tells his story about how he came to know Jesus Christ. He's literally kind of knocked off his high horse, and Jesus appeared to him. Jesus gave him the gospel, uh, presented it to him. But in this story, I think one of the things he does is he, he talks about the, the dangers of zealotry. And zealotry is this wrong belief that we can help God out coupled with wrong behavior. So Paul, in his zealousness, and it's okay to be zealous for the gospel, but zealotry is a whole different deal. It's a cause. It's a commitment to a cause. And that's what Paul had, was a commitment to a cause. And he, he talks about the danger of it, and we looked at that just briefly last week. Then the second story he tells is about later, he goes away, he gets the gospel from God, and then he starts to preach and he starts to go out, and he talks about how there is a believer, a Gentile, who comes to faith in Jesus Christ by the name of Titus. Titus was a Gentile, and Paul, being Paul, Paul was always raising up young men to kind of send them out and plant churches and and to, to really expand the kingdom. So Paul takes Titus with him on a trip to Jerusalem. Titus is this Gentile. I mean, he's never been to Jerusalem. And wow, what a great trip. Let's go on a mission trip to Jerusalem. Let's go see where it all started kind of thing. And let's go on a pilgrimage. Well, they get there and the Jewish, some Jewish believers see Paul and they see Titus, who's a Gentile, and they demand that Titus get circumcised. Um, In other words, they're saying, hey, he's got to become Jewish in order to be Christian. And Paul says, "It's no. He pushes back against them and says, this is not going to take place. Uh, You're compelling him to do something that's outside of the gospel. And he, he talks about in this story how the church leaders in Jerusalem backed him up, that they agreed with him that a person doesn't have to become Jewish in order to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And I think in this story, he's talking about the danger of legalism. Legalism is right behavior. In other words, Paul's not saying there's anything wrong with the law. Are you with me? He doesn't ever condemn the law. He condemns what he thinks is the wrong belief that goes along with following the law, which is that if I follow the law, then I can get right in God's sight. 
that the pathway to holiness is by my behavior. Please listen to me. The pathway to holiness is not by your behavior. Now, this is going to run contrary for some of you to what you think holiness is. Uh, holiness is me doing right. No, no, no. You're going to see today, holiness is imparted to you by God. Your response, your response, the transformation that takes place is a response to what he's done, not in order to get there. Does that make sense? So legalism, which is rampant in the church today. Hello? Hey, you want to be a good Christian? Here's what you got to do. You got to go to church. You got to tithe. You got to do this. You got to do that. Because if you don't, God's going to get you. You know, I was raised in the, in the background that said, basically, hey, if you don't tithe to the church, if you don't give money, God's going to figure out a way to get his money. Your refrigerator's going to break. Your car's going to break down. Give, or God's going to... Some of you are laughing, but you were there. I mean, it wasn't said quite that humorously, but it was implied that God still expects to tithe. Listen, that's not the gospel. That is legalism in just a prettier package. And it ain't all that pretty for the package. So there's the danger of legalism, which is right behavior with wrong belief. Then the third story he tells, which is an unbelievable story, is that he goes to Antioch later. And there, uh, some of these people who are teaching legalism have showed up. Jews from Jerusalem have showed up into Antioch. And they are, they, they're kind of sowing these seeds of legalism. And it's come to the place where even Barnabas and Cephas, who is Peter, Simon Peter, Apostle Peter, have been led astray. So Peter, for instance, was having dinner with the Gentiles in Antioch. He was fellowshipping with them. He was at their... And it, it's not like when we go out to dinner here, um, you know, you might invite somebody to dinner here and it's not like you're putting your stamp of approval. I mean, you're just going out to dinner with people. But in that culture, when you dined with someone, it was, there was a, there are a lot of implications involved in it. So what happened is, Peter, when he went to Antioch, he's, he's eating dinner with the Gentiles, having their food, having their stuff. The Jews show up and Peter says, ooh. I'm not going to eat with the Gentiles anymore. I'm going to just eat with the Jews. And Paul calls him out on it. And to me, um, we're going to look at this passage today, it's the danger of hypocrisy, which is a commitment to, I got to look good. This is the commitment to, I, I, I have the right belief, but now my behavior and my belief are not lining up. It's putting on a mask to kind of let people know that I am different. I, I have to share with you this dream I had last night. I had this dream uh, where, I don't know how I'm going to share this exactly, because I'm not going to confess my problems to you fully in public. <clears throat> but So I'm trying to dance around how I go about this. So um, uh, I had this dream last night where uh, I have... A habit that I'm over the years I've wanted to get rid of, but I haven't. And um, so, anyway, I had this dream where I could not not have the habit in public. In other words, I would I would dump it, 
But then when I got, went back out in public, it was with me. Are you with me? Can I dance around it that much? And here was the thing. Everybody else was in the same boat. Everybody else's hidden habit, people were carrying drinks, people were doing this, people were doing that. And it was like everybody's hidden habit was visible to everybody. Can you imagine the horror of that? I mean, I didn't feel so bad about my habit when I got out in public. The point being this, listen, hypocrisy is exactly that. We are going around acting like we are something when we really all have stuff. Paul is saying in this passage, people, you are free. And here's how you get free. Now, some of you today are struggling with your past. You are, you are not what God wants you to be today because you're still in prison to your past. There's still stuff that you did or stuff that was done to you or whatever the case may be. And the message today is this. You are free in Christ. And here's how. Galatians 2 verses 15 and following says this. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Now, by the way, you may, I can't, I can't comment on everything here. He, he's saying that there's some debate, by the way. Let me just set this up. Some debate, by the way, if this entire passage is spoken to Peter or if it's spoken to the church. Now, in the NIV, it's placed in quotes, which indicates that the interpreters of the NIV believe this is part of Paul's speech to Peter, that he's speaking directly to Peter in this entire passage that I'm reading to you. So when he says Gentile sinners, he's saying the Jews are thinking they're holy because they had the law and the Gentiles were sinners because they didn't. He puts it in kind of like, like we do air quotes, like uh, Gentile sinners. He's saying, this is not the case. Know that a man is not, let me go back up now that I kind of interrupted. I want you to get the flow of this. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. Now, I understand this, this passage gets a little confusion, confusing. I'll try to unwind it a little bit later. But here's where we're headed right now. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Now, this is a really rich theological passage, and I'm only going to look at it from a higher level. Uh, I encourage you to really study it and let it just uh, permeate or 
whatever the word is in your life, to just let it come to every part of you because it is so rich. But it, it, the truth of it is this. In Christ, our past lives, please listen to me, our past lives have been put to death. And we now live out our lives in Jesus. How does this happen? This is a gift of grace that our past lives can be put to death. And now that we live our lives in Jesus, how does this happen? The gospel of grace is activated through faith. Let me say it again. The gospel of grace is activated through faith. It's available. It's a grace. It's a gift. And, and we, we see it boom, explode in our lives by faith. Here's the incredible thing. Faith is a gift of grace. It's not, it's not like the little engine that could. I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. It's basically saying yes. And then walking out what God has for you. I've always been a fairly determined person. I've always had a measure of self-confidence in certain areas. My family tells this story about when I was five years old. My dad was at New Orleans Theological Seminary. He was studying. We lived in on-campus housing with a bunch of other families. And when I was five, I went out on the street, and there were a group of kids gathered. And there was this girl who was a couple of years older than me who had a bike and was bragging that she had just learned to ride her bike. So I said... No big deal. I can ride a bike too, which, by the way, I couldn't. I had never been on a bike. I didn't have a bike. And so the other kids who were standing around said, okay, prove it. And they gave me her bike to ride. So <laughs> I got on the bike, and I rode the bike. Now, you, this is not a sermon on humility. This, is a sermon, this sermon has a point. <laughs> There's just this kind of self-confidence I had that I, I could do this. Or fear of man that I would be embarrassed in front of my friends. I don't know. I don't know what I was thinking at five other than I got on the bike and rode it down to the end of the street and rode it back. So, yeah, my first ride on a bike was on a girl's bike. But that's a whole different story, too. <laughs> Fast forward years. And I'm, um, I'm picking up cycling again. Uh, some friends of mine gave me a bike. And uh, they took me out to Oak Mountain to teach me to kind of help ride. It was Nate Ross and Mark Colvin, and so we go out to Oak Mountain, and we're riding, and Nate and Mark are much better cyclists than me. They're much stronger um, cyclists than I am, and I hadn't ridden in a long time, and we're out riding at Oak Mountain, and we, we come to this one point, and we make this turn, and we're headed in the opposite direction. When we turn around, we realize there is a thunderstorm upon us, and I mean, we made this turn, and the heavens opened up. And we're out in Oak Mountain. There is nowhere to go. There is nowhere to hide. And it's one of those situations where it's thundering and lightning at the exact same moment. You know, ching, boom, ching, boom, right over you, and it's flooding. Well, Nate and Mark do what, you know, friends do. They rode off and left me. <laughs> they just, uh, they, you know. Honestly, it was every man for himself. And, and I was riding, honestly, I was riding as hard as I possibly could ride, and I couldn't. It was raining and pouring and the thunder and lightning, and I start praying to Jesus. Jesus, just let me get to my car. I've got small children. Please don't let me die out here. <laughs> Who's going to raise the kids? Who's, you know, my wife has never forgiven me if I, if I die out here. I mean, there's a moment of helplessness when you think you're going to die, and all you can do is cry out for help. 
Now listen, the point is this. There's, there's a place in our life for having a healthy self-confidence. But when it comes to other things, we got no hope other than God in our lives. Especially when it relates to our spiritual lives. Whenever we develop a self-confidence thinking we can handle this spiritual component, we are in big-time trouble. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. It is not myself. It is Christ who lives in me. Let's talk about this just for a moment. How does this aspect of faith and this crucifixion of Christ, the old life, living with him, how does this free me from my past? Are you with me? How does this help me move forward in the future? Because that's really what we want to look at. So two points today. We have three or four sub-points. But two points. <laughs> Through faith, we are accepted before God. Through faith, we are accepted before God. Faith is trust or confidence in God. When I was five, I had confidence in myself to ride a bike. When I was with Nate and Mark that day, I had no confidence that I was going to survive apart from the grace of God. My trust, my confidence at every moment of my life has to be in God. And faith activates that gospel of grace so that now I'm accepted by God. Listen, people... Some of you this morning, you need to highlight this, underline it, star it, put exclamation points around it, because you need to know that God fully accepts you. Here's why I'm saying this. We'll see in just a moment. It's not because of what you do that God accepts you. It's because of what Christ did in you that you're accepted by him. And so here's the passage in verse 15 and 16, going back to it again. He says, we who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by, how? Faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Now you may be saying, well, where's the whole accept thing in here? Well, that's really what the term justification or justified means. I started to put um, to know that we are justified by God, but some of you would have glazed over uh, because you start using these theological terms and sometimes we kind of, let me just say this, justification could be one of the most beautiful words in the whole Bible, but we don't, we don't really understand it, so we kind of um, think it's so theological. Let me see if I can unravel it just a little bit for us. So it's, bar, it's a borrowed legal term. So it, in legal things, you're accused of a crime. You come before the court, and they declare you either guilty, you're condemned, or not guilty, you're not condemned. And what Paul is saying is that through Jesus Christ, see, we come before a holy God, and a holy God cannot overlook our sin. Our sin, our rebellion, we looked at this last week. Our sin, our rebellion, it condemns us before God. What we deserve is death. But God looks at us through Jesus Christ and proclaims us justified, not guilty. We are not condemned. I mean, it's unbelievable that we are not condemned. Because what we deserve is death. Everyone in this room. Everyone here is a sinner. 
As I said, in my dream last night, it was, it was there for everybody to see, if you know what I mean. I mean, it was just there. We may hide it well, but we're all sinners, and we all deserve, because God is perfect and holy, we deserve death. But he declares us not condemned. Here's where it even gets better than that. It's one thing to be declared not guilty. It is a whole different ballgame to be declared righteous. I mean, think about it. It's one thing for God to say, hey, you're not guilty through Christ. It's a whole other thing to say you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's implicit in this term, justification. That's why it's such a great term. This is why the gospel is so good it's unbelievable. This is why it's called good news. Now, how do we get this right standing before God? How do we become justified, not guilty, right before God? It is all through faith. Faith activates who we are in Him. It, it, it activates this whole gospel of grace in our lives. You can't do any religious act to get justified. You can't act good enough in order to be declared righteous. So Jesus has done it for you. And through faith, we receive it. Martin Luther, when he talks about this um, justification through faith, he says this, this is the truth of the gospel. We're justified by faith. It is the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consists. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. Why, do, why should we beat it into our heads all around us continually? Because we forget. Over time, we start to think, this is about me. That God accepted me, but now i got to get accepted. No, no, no. You, you were accepted past, present, future. There's this, I know I'm going theological on us today, but it's so good. You having fun so far? Okay, so, good, because hang on. Um, there's this thing called the Heidelberg Catechism. The Heidelberg Catechism is one of the earliest catechisms of the church. It was written in 1563, of the Protestant church, written in 1563. A catechism is where they ask a question, and then you memorize the answer. This is how they used to teach kids. Uh, who is God? Boom. What is creation? Boom. Yeah. This predates the Westminster catechisms, both longer and shorter. It's one of the premier, I think, catechisms of the church. And they ask this question, how are you righteous before God? Now, again, you might be saying, well, no, not guilty is pretty good. I'll go with not guilty. No, no. It's all or nothing here, people. And, and God wants you to have right standing, righteousness, right standing before him where you can come into his presence and, and be with him. So the language here is a little thick, but there is a point. So here's how we are righteous before God according to the Heidelberg Catechism. Only by true faith in Jesus Christ, in spite of the fact that my conscience accuses me, 
that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God and have not kept any one of them and that I am still ever prone to all that is evil. That's dealing with our past. Our conscience is telling us, you never did anything good. You broke all the commands. How am I made righteous? Through faith, he goes on and says, nevertheless, God without any merit of my own, out of pure grace, grants me the benefits of the perfect sacrifice of Christ, imputing to me, giving to me, placing within me his righteousness and holiness. Please listen to the next line. As if I had never committed a single sin or had ever been sinful, having fulfilled myself all the obedience which Christ has carried out for me, if only I accept such favor with a trusting heart. As if I had never committed a single sin. God would look at you or me in that way. Unbelievable. And you may say, oh, preacher, I don't know. I don't know if God's that good. There's a story of a wealthy Englishman in London who bought for himself a Rolls Royce years ago. And it was in time when Rolls-Royce was saying something like this, this is the car of all cars and it will never break down. Now, good luck trying to hear that from Tesla or anybody else these days. Car of all cars that will never break down. Guy bought him a Rolls-Royce and he then transported it to France where he was driving around France and can you imagine what happens? His car breaks down. So he calls back to Rolls-Royce and says, hey, the car of all cars has broken down. And they say, we don't believe you. But what we're going to do is we're going to send a mechanic to look at your car. Mechanic comes over to France, sees that indeed it is broken down, and repairs the car. He fixes the car. The guy goes on his trip to France. The mechanic flies home. Guy goes back to England after a period of time. And he notices after a couple of months that he never got a bill from Rolls-Royce. And he's, he's thinking, well, surely there's been some mistake. The guy flew all the way to France, repaired the car, flew all the way back. There's got to be some bill. He was a man of means, so he didn't mind paying the bill. So he sends a letter to Rolls-Royce and says, hey, listen, my car broke down in France. Here's my name. You sent a mechanic. He repaired the car. Please just, uh, I, I'd like to pay my bill. In response, he got this from Rolls-Royce. Sir, with all due respect, we have absolutely no record of anything ever having gone wrong with your car. <laughs> because our cars don't break down. <laughs> Listen to this, people. The God of the universe looks down at your life when you activate that grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And he says, I have absolutely no record of you having done anything wrong. Now, listen, you may be saying, oh, well, you know, what he's done is he's just swept it under the rug. He just, no, he, this is how great the gospel is. You have been justified. He's taken the full record of your sins 
and my sins. And what has he done with them? He placed them on his son on the cross of Jesus Christ. So that the full debt of every single one of my sins has been paid. It's not being ignored. It was costly. It cost him Jesus. This is the gospel, people. And this is why it is such incredible news. Now, how does this give you freedom from your past? If God looks at Bart Brookins and says, I have no record of his wrongs, who am I to place myself in the position of God and then bring it back up and to beat myself up for it? I am, in essence, placing myself above God. Now, some of us say, no, wait, wait, wait a minute. I'm doing just the opposite. I, I'm just, you know, trying to deal with, no, 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 no. Listen, God has chosen to pay, have the price paid for of your sins and of your past. He has no record of it. Don't place yourself in a position higher than God and bring it back up again. Instead, receive what he says about you. You are loved. You are fully accepted. You are not condemned. You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Walk out who you are. Isn't that good news? I mean, really, it would change all of us if we could really get a hold of this. Because some of us keep dealing with that. We know what we did. Or we know what was done to us. And we keep dredging it back up like, I got to do something, I got to do something. You never could do anything. He did it all for you, but he fully accepts you. Second point is this. Through faith, through faith, we are alive to God. Here's that famous verse. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The life I now live. See, it's one thing, it's great to be accepted. Right? Hello? It's great to be accepted. It's great to be forgiven. It's great to be declared righteousness. And it's even another level to be transformed. I am alive in Christ. Romans and Galatians both speak about this transformation. I was this. God forgave me. God declared me. God seized me. Now I am alive in him. I have been transformed. We live not to get transformed, but because we are transformed. Does that make sense? In other words, I, I, I'm not living in Christ in order to get transformed. I, Christ is alive in me, and therefore, I'm being transformed. What are some typical responses of people who can't get over their past? I, I, I'm just giving you four that I thought of this week. Four Typical responses of those who can't get over their past. One of them is self-punishment. Self-punishment. This, is, this takes so many different forms. One is setting yourself up for failure. In other words, I, I've had friends who 
who said, you know, what I really deserve is failure. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to set myself up for failure. So at least I can control my failure. It's whacked thinking, but we, we do it. Because I don't want to fail and then feel bad like it was a surprise. I want to fail and know that I was going to fail because I set myself up to fail. And that's what I deserve. Self-punishment. There is also in this self-punishment, this is where I think legalism many times creeps in. Like I have to live by the rules because this is my way. It's like an asceticism. It's like this, uh, I have to punish myself. Um, beat myself or starve myself to death because this is what I deserve. And see if you can hang with me just for, for just a second because I believe this and hopefully you'll believe it by the end. There is this, there's this subtle thing at times within the church that says that, that I am in debt Christ. Hang with me just for a second because it sounds right. I'm in debt to Christ. Christ died for me. I'm now a Christian. Now I'm in debt to him. The only problem with that is I don't think it's true. Why am I not in debt to Christ? Because what it says is Christ paid. Now I'm repaying what he did. If I'm in debt to someone, that means they loan me money, therefore I, what, owe them, right? Well, the gospel is such good news because I never had the currency to pay for any of this in the first place. I could never pay my own way into righteousness. But now that I am righteous, what makes me think I now have the currency to pay back what Christ did for me? And it also loses the fact that Christ paid and he now sits at the right hand of God the Father continuing to intercede for me. What Christ did, he's continuing to do. He, he didn't do it and stop. He's continuing for me to pay. Not going to the cross again, but he gave himself for me. He is still serving us. He's still empowering us. He's still enabling us. He's doing everything that we need. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. Therefore, I don't have to punish myself by even doing the law. I, I, I'm transformed because I'm alive in Christ. And this transformation is not repayment of my debt, but it's a response to his life that's within me. You see the difference? I'm being transformed because of his life that's in me, not because I'm trying to repay anything. Some of you glazed over there just for a second, but come on back. And you might listen to it later because that's really good. Um, another, another response that many of us have is avoidance. I, I'm just going to avoid ever thinking about it, ever doing it. I'm going to pretend. I'm going to avoid. This is where we get into hiding things. Self-medication, because we don't deal with our past, we don't let Christ really deal with us. It's still a hook in our hearts, and instead we drink or we do whatever. We try to medicate ourselves to, to bring us pleasure. Another is unworthiness. I, I, I know I'm saved, but I really don't deserve this. I, I don't deserve anything. I, I, I'm so unworthy, I really have nothing to offer. 
Really, I can't get over my past so much that I really can't participate in church life and, and give things away because I'm just not worthy. People, that is not the gospel. The gospel says you are alive in Christ Jesus. You are alive in Him. You're, you're a recipient of the power and presence of the Spirit of God. Hey, look around. No one was worthy. I mean, what you may think I'm unworthy compared to him or her, but hey, we all deserved death. But Christ gave himself for all of us. Finally, uh, powerlessness. Powerlessness. This idea that our past keeps us from walking in the power of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Listen, you are indwelt by Christ. You're not in debt to Christ. Christ lives in me. He lives in me. The psalmist prophesied about this when he said in Psalm 103, He does not treat us as our sin deserves. Hallelujah. Or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. How, 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 what's the gap there between heaven and earth? Yeah, it's pretty big. I could, if we got a hold that this is how much God loves us, we'd be unstoppable. We would, we would, our past would pale in comparison to the glory of God as he indwells us and fills our present. He redeems our past to show his glory in the present and bring us freedom both now and in the future. It's all by grace. It's activated by faith. We're fully accepted by him. We're fully alive in him. And we'll see next week that it even goes a step further because I couldn't get all this in in one week. There's a third point to this sermon, and it's that he, in fact, blesses us. There's a blessing that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't happen through legalism. It doesn't happen. This is the gospel. This is how good the gospel is. You are, if you didn't hear anything else I said today, please, please hear that you are free from your past. One of the oldest ballparks in the United States is Wrigley Field. Wrigley Field was um, constructed in 1914. Uh, by the way, only Fenway Park in Boston, where the Red Sox play, was built a couple of years earlier than that. <clears throat> Wrigley Field is where the Chicago Cubs play baseball, those lovable losers. Chicago, the Chicago Cubs won a World Series like in 1908 or something. And they built Wrigley Field. And from the time Wrigley Field was built up until last year, they had never won the World Series. hundred and something years. The last World Series appearance before last year was in 1948. And in 1948, they were playing in Wrigley Field, and this local bar owner uh, came to a game, and he brought his goat with him. I, I know it's a strange story that you would even think about taking your goat to the ballpark, but he took his goat. They kicked the guy out and his goat. The guy spoke a curse over the Cubs and and from that day forward, they never even made it back to the World Series. They called it the curse of the goat. 
They had a lot of curses. You know, baseball fans are very superstitious. In 2003, they were on the verge of seeing all of this change. In 2003, the Cubs had made it to the playoffs. They would made it to the championship game, and the winner was going to go on to the World Series. First time in 50 blah, blah years they were going to go to the World Series. They could see it. They could taste it. They were up three games to two. First one to four games wins. In this game, it's the eighth inning. They're up three to zero. They're only five outs from going to the World Series. They're going to break the curse of the GOAT. They're going to go to the World Series. They have their ace on the mound. Mark Pryor was pitching. And in the eighth inning, I can remember where I was when I saw this the first time. This, this is what happens. Again in the air, down the left field line. A long reaching into the stands and couldn't get it. He's livid with a fan. That's awfully close to fan interference right there. The umpire's all over it. Empire right down there, Mike Everett's on the play. If a Lou has to reach into the stands, it's fair game for the fans to catch the ball. If the fan reaches out over the field, then it can be ruled fan interference. That is very, very close. The man's name, by the way, in the hat with the earphones that you see reaching over the stands right there is named Steve Bartman. What happens after this, Moises Alou goes to catch the ball, and he's upset because he didn't catch it, and this would have been the fourth out. I mean, they would, it would have been the second out of the inning, four outs from going. What happens here is the Cubs unravel. Shortstop commits an error. By the end of this very inning, they've given up eight runs. They lose game six, eight to three. Then they go on to lose game seven. They don't go back to the World Series. This guy, Steve Bartman, he becomes the scapegoat for how the Chicago Cubs unravel. He's a 26-year-old guy who's a mate. He loves the Cubs. Look at him. He's such a goober. He's got his hat on. He's got earphones listening to the game while he's at the game on the front row in his glasses they don't show the replay at the stadium, but people start calling the stadium and say that guy in the Cubs hat with the earphones interfered. They start throwing beer at him. They start harassing him. He has to be escorted by security out of the park. The next day, his home address is posted online. He receives death threats. He receives all sorts of things that happen. The police have to go to his house and protect his home. His parents and him have to relocate. Um, he, he issues an apology letter, but for years, years, this guy doesn't talk to the press, tries to keep his head down, tries to stay out of the public eye, but everybody in Chicago knows the name of Steve Bartman. He becomes an icon of hatred, and because of this, what you or I would do, the ball's coming, I'm going to catch a baseball, foul ball at the game. It's everybody's dream. A mistake. This last year, the Chicago Cubs went back to the World Series for the first time since the 40s. Not only did they go back, but they actually won the World Series.
for the first time in 111 years or whatever, 109 years. This past week, all the Chicago Cubs got their World Series rings. And the Ricketts family, in an incredible gesture of grace, had one specially made for Steve Bartman and presented it to him in private in their office. With his name on it, he gets a World Series ring. And the, the family says to them, they issued this announcement, basically, uh, we hope this let me get the right quote. We hope this provides closure in an unfortunate chapter of the story that is perpetuated throughout our quest to win a long-awaited World Series. Barman, for the first time, this is the first time in years, since 2003, he has issued any kind of public statement other than the one where he said, I'm sorry. And he thanked the Ricketts family, and he thanked, he talks about sportsmanship and life, and he still didn't make it publicly, it was a written a written statement. Here's my point, people. It's a very moving story that this guy messed up and is seen as an, you know, thing of hatred for all these years, and now he's, for no, nothing he ever did is given a ring. That much more a billion times over is how God sees you. You've messed up way worse than that. You've done horrible things. You rebelled against God, and yet, through Christ, he looks at you and says, you're my champion. I love you. You are fully accepted. You are, you are right in my sight, and you have been being transformed by the power of the gospel. I, I want to encourage you today. We're going we're gonna to have communion together. And I, I, it is my desire... See, here's my point in the sermon today. I'm trying to get here. If you receive the truth about who God says you are and who you are, it will free you from your past. You don't get free from your past by focusing on your past. You get free from your past by focusing on him and what he's done in your life. So when you come to this table today and you receive this cup and this bread, receive that you are justified by by faith, you've been crucified with Christ with him. You are no, it's no longer you who lives, but Christ who lives within you and walk in the freedom of the Lord. Stand up with me if you would. And as I pray, I'm going to ask our elders to come to the front and prepare to uh, have communion, to re- for you to receive communion. Middle section, you'll come down the middle aisles, outside section down the outside aisles, get the elements, take it back to your seat, We'll take it together, and then we're going to have a time where we pray for one.